Hello, welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is a music show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at funkinstuff.net and on YouTube, Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast edition from iTunes, funkinstuff.net, and other leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, author and musicologist, author of Everything is on the One, the first guy to funk at your copy at Amazon if you don't already have it, if you don't, what are you waiting for? Um, whether you're listening or watching, I thank you very much for your support, and you've tuned into another exceptional show because my guest today is harmonica player extraordinaire Lee Oscar, a founding member of WAR, one of the most important and successful funk R&B bands of all time. He's also released solo albums and in recent years performed as a lowrider band with fellow war uh, founders, Howard Scott and Howard uh, Harold Brown. In fact, all three of them were just recently on a Truth and Rhythm show. Hopefully you've seen that. If you haven't, make sure you do. That show was so interesting and Lee's life so amazing. And he's had such a prodigious career that I just had to have him back on again. So Lee, it's so good to see you. Thank you for spending more time with us. Hey, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Good Appreciate the acknowledgement, and uh, I'm grateful. Thank you. Absolutely, my pleasure. We covered, you know, a lot of things on the previous show, but um, there's more, much more to talk about. And so, before getting into that, though, I wanted to uh, give viewers a little bit of background of your your roots and then get into some questions. So uh, Lee was born in Copenhagen, Denmark in 1948 and was six years old when a family friend gave him his first harmonica. He grew up listening to Danish radio, enjoying all types of music and cites Ray Charles as the biggest influence from that period. Lee moved to the United States at the age of 18 with little more than a harmonica in his pocket, a truth of success story. He soon met and joined forces with ex-Animals lead singer Eric Burden and assembled what would become War. For nearly a quarter century, Lee was that band's featured harmonica soloist and helped define its sound. That catalog includes such classics as Spill the Wine, All Day Music, Get Down, Slipping in the Darkness, The Cisco Kid, Where Was You At, Gypsy Man, Me and Baby Brother, Why Can't We Be Friends, Low Rider, Heartbeat, Summer, and Galaxy. That's just a small sampling. Lee also released three solo albums between 1976 and 1981 and was named the number one instrumental artist of the year in 1976 by all three major record industry magazines, Billboard and Cashbox and Record World. Lee's compositions have been featured on movie soundtracks and TV commercials. In 1983, the Lee Oscar harmonica was introduced and today, his firm offers harmonicas in a variety of tunings, along with replacement replays, toolkits, instruction books, and other related products. Lee Oscar harmonicas have become a household name. And you're going to want to stick around until the end of this show because there's going to be a very special announcement from Lee about an exclusive Truth and Rhythm giveaway of Lowrider Band autographed editions. I know I want one. You're going to want one too, so stick around for that. Coming up, we'll find out how Lee developed his unique playing style, talk harmonica history, and see some very special instruments. We'll go behind the scenes for more rock and roll stories and memories, discuss Lee's solo works, get into the history and success of Lee Oscar harmonicas, focus on the lowrider band, and then wrap it up with the present and look to the future. All right, so with all that, Lee, are you ready? Uh, I'll try to be. <laughs> Yes, sir. Lee, I wanted to ask you, what are some mm -hmm. harmonica players you looked up to while growing up, and who are some players you admire currently and why? Well, I'm, I have to be honest, uh, I didn't grow up listening to harmonica players. I never had a record. I never even ever had any opportunity to have a record player records or anything hmm. music that existed if i was to not entertain myself um, but um you know when i learned about larry adler after i came after i came in the united states 
and um, one of the greatest uh, classical music, uh, a lot of show tunes. Um, I met him in New York. He was playing the Rainbow, I think it was called the Rainbow Lounge or something, Rainbow something in New York. And that was the first time he came back to the United States since he was McCarthy um, era where he was exiled because uh, being blamed for, for being accused of being a communist. You know, that happens to a lot of people in the entertainment business, I think. He became friends with a uh, uh, lot of amazing people in England. And, uh, and I met him when he came to the United States and we became good friends. But, in my, but before I came to the United States, I wasn't aware of any professional players. The only one I, players I knew were people that they picked it up as a hobby or something, just like when I got my first harmonica and, and most couldn't continue playing, took it seriously, like I, like I was in love with it, you know. So it was just, it was just an evolution. If I have to say anything about it, uh, it evolved with myself, uh, not a particular style, not, I, I don't even, didn't even know about styles. I think that was an American thing. Calling it you know, categories, yeah. it was just music. Mm -hmm. As you got deep into it, though, did you eventually discover you know some of the great blues players and 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 guys like that, and maybe some other um, contemporaries that were prominent playing harmonica in those early seventies years? Well, when I after I had been in the United States, um, came to Haight Ashbury. I found out uh, a lot about uh, Junior Wells. Mm -hmm. Junior Wells and Buddy Guy had one album. Uh, some people played me that. Others were like Little Walter. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Paul Butterfield, who was the, you know, a big deal back uh, hippies and that. I mean, like, it's like Discovered the Blues. Uh, American blues, I should say, through uh, um, uh, and Paul Butterfield obviously was a was a, his big influence. Obviously, like a lot of people after that, Bill Walter was a big deal. You know, um, you know Sonny Boy Williamson mm -hmm. and um, Sonny, you know, um, Brownie McGee, uh, Sonny and Brown. What is it? What is it now? Uh, the the cup the pair um, Sonny Terry sorry I'm I'm very bad with names but Sonny Terry but they were huge influences in a lot of people as right now today that are playing the so-called American blues they they were listening those records over and over again copied perfectly um, not good at that no but you know to answer your question that was uh, uh, I, I discovered a lot of great players, you know, since I've been in America. But in the early days... Well, of course, even guys like, you know, Bob, Bob Dylan, who was just playing it to accompany himself, and, and Neil Young and those kind of guys, um, if nothing else, I think we're helping to get the harmonica, you know, in the consciousness of the music public. Well, I, I, you know, the bottom line of harmonica is, is an amazing instrument that, uh, you know, you, you know, right from the get-go, it plays you. It sounds like a symphony or something. It sounds like you're doing something musical. And people like Bob Dylan, uh, I think, uh, does, an, does, is, does an amazing, uh, uses harmonica in a beautiful way. Uh, being a virtuoso, it's nothing about, uh, you know, having all these skills and poets or whatever it's uh and that's not what music have to be about anyhow i think bob dylan uses harmonicas in, in a beautiful way and that's why a lot of people uh, fell in love with harmonica too just by uh hearing him perform his songs uh, along with his voice and guitar i mean it's a, it's a it's a nice touch and neil young uh Likewise, he, you know, a lot of people love what he does. He does great songs. He shadows uh, things uh, with the harmonica. 
I mean, if I took everything out and you just heard, if I was to mute everything in the recording, all I heard is a Monica. Yeah, Monica may not make any sense because it's 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 not like like I say, being this virtuoso and playing, but it's it's a it's a beautiful, just nice touch that adds a lot to uh, you know the performance, and that's why Monica is for a lot of people. To me, I think in, me, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, rock and, and, and R&B, you know, from the 70s on forward, I think probably yourself and Stevie Wonder would be the ones most responsible for really, you know, having a lot of, you know, radio songs that have harmonica prominent in them. That's, you know, that's very nice to be acknowledged and that's a compliment, but... Um, you know, harmonica is we're not one. It's a mainstream instrument that everybody has played. The lips have touched in one way or the other. It's played, but it's not so often you hear it in, in mainstream music uh, in recordings and that. And I was very fortunate to be with an amazing band. Uh, I can say War because I was with War, an amazing band, and the guys we still continue as the lowrider band. But that opportunity and and having hits, uh, you know, Lowrider is one that stands out. You know, um, it was bigger than it was when it was actually a hit, um, and that's a lot of people don't even realize that's harmonica and saxophone. That was the sound that we did. You know, I was uh, playing harmonica and Charles Smith played the saxophone, and we would play melodies together, and that was our sound. And uh, um, you know, if if we there's a lot of lot of I think there's a lot of greatness out there that has never been acknowledged. But of course, mediocrity will always rule. You know, I mean that's is abundant. You know, so so it's fortunate if something mediocre, something unique, uh, gets a chance to get through. Because sometimes uniqueness is through the gate. Mm -hmm. It's not something. It's not a comfort zone necessarily. Everybody does say, "What is that?" You know. So, so I'm very grateful that uh, Korea so far has got me where I am. Complaining. <laughs> well, so we're 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 talking about harmonica being uh, a, an accessible instrument. Um, you know, it's relatively low cost compared, depending on what kind you get, com compared to other types of instruments. It's portable and all that. But um, Lee, in your mind. What kind of separates, like maybe a um, competent harmonica player versus somebody who's really good or someone who's exceptional on the instrument? Well, I, I the, the first thing again, and not to be redundant, is that you say you can put a harmonica in your mouth, and and cordially that the way any harmonica is set up, no matter what key, whether it's a major or minor, whatever the tuning is. Speaking, it's going to sound musical. So you, so you're starting off with a kind of a thing, as you know. But the learning curve, you know, where to get to the point where you actually play the instrument, it's not so instant. Um, and they, you know, I can't measure how long and what it takes. Everybody's everybody as an individual. You know, uh, Everybody's different, you know. It's like my voice. It's like the way it's the way I sing, and I'm fortunate that at six years old I started um, in my own way. It may not have been sounded good to anybody else, but to me, which mattered, it was like I was in my world, and it sounded amazing. Inspired, and naturally, if you keep playing, you're eventually going to take control of the instrument and and end up playing it rather than playing you. Um, and some of those techniques can be very challenging uh, if you're going to just try to learn them, posting to where I just evolved with some things that I use as techniques. It's like learn to talk, you know, and then how, how, did you, how can you pronounce that word that way, you know? I don't know. I have to start to think about just and think how my how I'm 
my physically, my voice, my vocal cords, and I'm moving. So, um, you know, three years, I've, I've become more and more curious in what makes vibrato and the different types of vibrato and tone and all that. Things I've inherited through, through the, the evolution of me playing. Uh, you know, to do anything really, really well, uh, doesn't matter what it is, uh, it, it's all in time. It, it takes time. and it's, I mean, to me, just to make the point is, the harmonica in me, when I play, is like one. It's, 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 it's part of me. It's my vocal cords. If I if I hear people perform, I, I, there's a good way I can I can express I can explain this. People play a guitar, and and I see them and they they're really natural in guitar, and then I hear them sing, or if I or if I hear them sing and they sing really natural, the harmonica or the guitar and it doesn't feel very natural. It should sound the same as the voice. Maybe, maybe intonation is, is not what I'm talking about, it being in tune up, but the phrasing and everything, if, you, if it's really connected rather than from here, but from your heart and soul where you're really expressing, it should be the same whether you're singing or you're playing guitar. There's something that's gonna, that would sound, because it's from the core of your soul, it's gonna be the same. And that's gonna have some similarity. And sometimes you hear people that have that, that zone. But, but often people are playing things from memory, you know, they're thinking it, and, they, and it's not the same connection. Is what makes people feel music, and that's the naiveness, that the things that are not from thinking necessarily, but it's like that energy that just comes out, that innocence, that, that thing that comes out that is naive. Um, in a moment, and that takes a long time, I think, to to build. Um, um, I don't know if it's being just say security, comfort, trust your trust your instincts, but it's basically just let go where it just it just comes out, just like I'm talking, it comes out. It's that takes a long time, I think. That's and that's when music is really amazing. I mean, I, I love playing when I'm feeling that zone. Yeah. Well, and that, that zone is when you really connect with the audience, too. I mean. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So uh, looking back on, you know, the, the work you did with the band in the 70s, um, is there anything in particular that you're, you're most proud of, whether it's a particular composition or a particular, particular way you, you played or, or something that you accomplished? What are you most proud about from that period? Wow. I think in an overall, before I could even pick out anything specific, overall was just the fact that I could explore and feel my own soul um, on a regular daily basis with, uh, with, with other musicians as the band, as war or continuous lower the band. That if you, when you get to hear yourself, when you get to hear yourself play, and not, you, you're not told, okay, I want you to play this melody line, and you're trying to practice that. I'm jamming every day. It, it opens up so many things that you would never even know about yourself or would never even have place. The greatest players who can recharge every day because the chart is there and they can play it and they do a great job. It's a big thing missing. And that missing thing is that soul in, in, in the moment. And have a band that you can play like that every day. More than talking, just playing. And then ideas come and all that. And when you live that kind of uh, that kind of life, uh, you know, daily, year after year after year, man, it's like it, it's like nothing else. Mm -hmm. That's probably the most special thing about uh, me and Howard Scott and Hale Brown and BB Dickinson and Papa D. Allen and 
Lonnie Jordan, who I don't I don't think he ever has experienced that magic since. <laughs> but um, the, you know, calculated things it, it has a it has a talent and a skill, but the moment that is amazing. <laughs> and every time we do that, that's and we do that every time we play. We get paid to do that. <laughs> that's fantastic. Awesome. So, Lee, last time we, we talked, um, Jimi Hendrix came up, and that was an amazing story. I was wondering if there was any other, you know, well-known figures or, like, musical icons or whatever um, from that era, since, you know, you came up in that magic uh, kind of uh, mystic era of the late 60s and early 70s when there were so many important figures in music. Were there any other ones that stand out that you encountered or met during that period that impressed, you know, left an impression upon you? Um, I mentioned before about Ray Charles. Yeah, about the show with Ray Charles. Yeah, that one came up. That was a big deal. Um, we, we, we played, we opened up, and a lot of, lot of, lot of great artists open up for us because we were known as the, the band at, at, at certain gigs where we would be the, the big ticket draw and then you, then the next thing you're a headliner and they opening up. Uh, I remember one time B.B. King was opening up for us and it was just strange. But um, I, I really can't single anybody out. I mean, um, there was, there's always been some players that I wish before they had made the transition that I even personally could have could have uh, connected and recorded with Stanley Turnitin. I wish mm. uh, I met Roland Kirk. Roland Kirk, one Roland Kirk was amazing. I went to uh, with Eric Burden to see uh, in New York uh, to see uh, Roland Kirk, Rasan as he's called as he's called. He was playing this little little nightclub downstairs in this place, and then. And um, and he he was playing to an amplifier at some point. An amplifier, something went wrong, broke. And so somebody out of the audience, this little club, goes up and tries to fix. And he puts the guy to the side. He's blind, right? Well, he couldn't put him to the side. And he goes in there, and whatever he did, and starts working. But he was a huge, huge influence uh, to me in me for me i mean i was i had he was a big influence not musically not just musically but in humility and uh, and how he how things handled like he eric Burton introduced me to Roland kirk and we did one one tune on eric Burton declares war um Roland kirk was son whatever we called it and introduced me to him and i there was one album it's called Voluntary Slavery. And Roland Kirk was playing the Newport Jazz Festival. And, um, forget the MC, who was the MC. Basically, uh, when Roland Kirk, when he finished, they wanted him to play more. In my time, keep going. Because apparently, the year before, playing the Newport Jazz Festival, and they all booed him upstage because they weren't listening to his music they were watching him and thinking he's a clown because he at some point he was actually playing like four horns at the same time hmm. saxophone at the same time facing harmonies this guy's that you know Roland Kirk was doing and then two flutes the nose flute and the electric flute you know blind and he's grabbing these things and playing and uh, he was a, he was a genius I mean, he, he looked up to Coltrane, but I would put him with Coltrane, oh, amazing. If it wasn't for Jones, other than introduced to Eric, from, Eric introduced me to Roland Kirk, there have been very few people that knew about Roland Kirk. Quincy Jones, uh, you know, sessions and, and became more awareness about him. A guy like Ian Anderson, who, uh, what's the band? Uh, Jeff Rotel. 
but they made such a big deal. He's he's playing flute and singing to, you know, um, of Ian Anderson really, really uh, acknowledged the guy like Roland Kirk. But I certainly know that he, he got influence from Roland Kirk. Mm. Kirk was amazing. That was a big one for me to be introduced and to learn about. I mean, I think he died a broken heart. Mm. Very angry and, and frustrated. And I can do why. Yeah. Last time, Lee, we talked about, you know, most of the songs and albums, but um, we didn't bring up the soundtracks and some of the instrumentals and sort of the, you know, out of the mainstream, if you will, um, recordings and, and releases that you did in the late 70s. Are there any of those that you want to mention or, or talk about at all? Or um. You, you know, opportunities to do uh, music for some movies. And um, <laughs> there's some great stuff. Actually, the, you learn in the movie industry because it takes so much money to make a movie. And it takes so much money just to make one movie, whether it's a great movie or not a great movie. It's phenomenal. And so it's, and then with a lot of investors, there's also sometimes difference in opinion. And you learn stuff, can sit on ever before even being finished or never released. Mm -hmm. um, we had a few opportunities to do like River Niger. River Niger, Cicely Jones, what is her name now? I'm sorry. Cicely Tyson. Thank you. And James L. Jones, I can't think, I'm bad with names, but it was an amazing cast. Actually, they came when we were doing our recording, they came to our session there. Tyson said it's one of the best movies she's ever done. I mean, by the time that movie got released, it was like a B movie. Mm. All these amazing parts that we were doing music to were edited out. I mean, it was just, it, what, for whatever, who was, whatever anybody was thinking and whatever they were doing, as well, you know, I, I, I think the people who are responsible for editing are the least acknowledged. I think, um, I mean, a great editor, Things when it's a great movie, it's it's a lot to do with being a great editor, and maybe hopefully nobody's fighting, like disagreeing that this part should not be in or that part should be. So we've we've done some soundtracks. They end up being and what they turn out to be, unfortunately, was was like day and night from what we originally saw. Mm -hmm. I myself, I am very very much into uh, composing melodies, hook lines, themes. And I want to pursue that more than ever um, now as we speak, uh, doing uh, soundtracks for movies, um, themes, television themes. Uh, I really want to focus on the publishing and all these things I've been composing and arranging. Because that's really a love I, I always was wanted to connect with more. Uh, I've done things in um, Japan uh, in the 80s. I did a lot of television commercials. I produced, uh, not produced, I composed uh, the music for the TV commercials, whether, you know, uh, Budweiser, Mitsubishi, Shiseido, uh, you name it. Hmm. And I would even have them put music by Lee Oscar right in the front of the commercials. <laughs> He couldn't ever do that in America. It's like a like a your own music video. Yeah, yes, yeah. But uh, I I would love to have those opportunities, and so that's what I'm focusing now. I'm working on doing some presentations, uh, getting getting through those through those gates to uh, to um, uh, present some of my music that I'm doing. 
Well, let's uh, turn our attention, Lee, to uh, some of your solo albums. Your self-titled debut came out in 1976, and you had former Sly and the Family Stone member uh, Greg Errico playing a role in that, I noticed. Um, how did the decision to do a solo record evolve, and you know, what was that whole process and experience like for you? Well, that, I appreciate you asking that question. Um, you know, it, it, it started with, before I was even thinking about doing a solo album, it started with that as war was a jam band, and we basically we go in the studio and we kick something off or something happens or somebody brings one little thing in or something and then whatever we do within the jam, and it's recorded. So I've come in one time with, with um, the, the, the compositions that I had composed that's called uh, The Three Moments on my first solo album. I remember, I remember home, um, The Journey, The Immigrant, and The Promised Land. So I came in with those, and the guys are trying to do it, but there was something didn't feel. It just didn't have a feeling that I, it, that was, it, it wasn't natural. And so that immediately made me realize that all of us collectively as the band is that chemistry and whatever we do there. Every one of us, I know for myself and I'm sure everybody else too, have creative things going on, opera or play, who knows what, that is not on the lines of what we do when we do together. Shouldn't that creativity be uh, explored and used? Um, I said, you know, I'm going to come out with a solo album because there's a lot of musical things that I, I, I have in me that, that is not necessarily war. And that first solo album I did, I used a harmonic minor scale called I Remember Home. And uh, the guys, the guys I use from San Francisco, the different musicians and Greg on drums, um, harmonic minor, and harmonic minor to them, you know, like like it's like double time, like 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 Russian and that, and 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 the funk, dum dum boom, like half time against it, while I go. Something and then the other things are just going have boom. Okay, so I was I, I was um, when we were preparing this, the first movement last, the last movement first, so I can just get it reversed in the heads. Great. I mean the album turned out really beautiful. And I decided to put war on the album cover. So I so people wouldn't make the mistake of thinking I left the band. Mm. But you know, and hoping that all the other guys in the band would come out with solo albums. And I can I was imagining on the top of the charts, the first number one, war, and then second, third, and fourth, each individual guys got also hit records, you know. When I went in the road to promote the album. Uh, we did like a tour in different cities, um, press parties and, you know, drinks, food, whatever. Everybody in the industry was like, they, they couldn't conceive that I had, they couldn't, they, they couldn't understand. No, I didn't leave the band. They said, man, it's, man, you, you finally left the band. And, you, and I'm saying, so why would I leave the band? This band is amazing. But it was hard for them. To understand because back in those days, if you got your own album, that means that's a sign left the band. So um, that's basically, but not everybody had did what I did or was as ambitious or whatever, you know, to do their solo projects. Charles Miller did some things, they never got uh, acknowledged. Papa D. Allen did a couple of things, never got out. Uh, Lonnie Jordan. Things didn't do too good. Um, I was very fortunate, and then, then Billboard record, Billboard Cashbox, uh, no, a Billboard Cashbox and Record World, as you said, acknowledged it, and uh, it was it was amazing. 
And also Greg Arico, I have to say, Greg, to be part of it, so it's Lee Oscar and Greg Arico, Greg Arico and Lee Oscar, because, you know, he had a name from Sly and we, we, we hooked up. But because he wasn't uh, on an agreement with uh, Far Productions, they, they wouldn't want it to be like the artist for this project. So he put us How were you put together with Greg? Well, we met uh, in, in San Francisco when uh, Jerry, Jerry Goldstein and Steve Gold was trying to work with Greg Arrico as a producer too. And I went over to Greg's house because um, I was living up in San Francisco too. So I, I went over to his house and he had a Chamberlain uh, one of the first Chamberlains is like, um, you know, sample tapes, um, that's called a Chamberlain. And um, uh, he, he borrowed it from Doc Rauch, who was the bass player from Santana. And uh, I was amazed with the strings. And then I came up with that riff called BLT, Zada, Beda, in his house. And I said, uh, hey, do, do you, do you mind? No, I, I no, I, I said, hey, do you mind? I'm gonna go home and get my harmonicas. I, I'll be back in a minute. And I came back, and then I came up with that riff. And he was playing uh, on that Chamberlain. He was playing the um, the Maltron is what what was like the Chamberlain, the Maltron license from Chamberlain. So it had all these amazing sounds. Things. So I bought this this keyboard so we could use it for the album, and um, one from Doc Rauch, and. Um, BLT was a tune that Greg and I composed together. You know, I came up with that melody and put the change, chord changes, and that was the that was the springboard to uh, starting a new album. That's the Yeah, BLT is a, a one of my favorites, um, right in my funk zone. Also on that record, I really like um, "Down the Nile." That one's funky too. Oh, yeah. uh, that one to me, I feel like, and I don't know if it was, but to me. It brings to mind, I'm thinking of kind of like a Grand Central Station meets Herbie Hancock kind of vibe. <laughs> well, that one was uh, initiated. Uh, there was a, a, a Gregory Eagle uh, played a, a rhythm machine. That's what that is. And Bobby Baker, amazing bass player, played the bass line. And then they brought it to my house. And immediately when I heard that, I, I heard, I heard the melody, so went back in the studio and I put the harmonica, and then I had Charles Miller put the saxophone on with me. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah so, you. and then two years later, you came back with um, "Before the Rain," <clears throat> and um, yeah, that album actually had "Haunted House" on it. I had that on a twelve-inch, a twelve-inch single. I really like the twelve-inch version but, of that, and I noticed on this record too. Um, a song like Feeling Happy kind of had like an Earth, Wind & Fire kind of vibe. And then uh, Steppin', uh, really a lot of soloing from you on that one. So tell me about, about that record and those sessions. Okay. Um, before, before the Rain uh, was, an, was a very important composition to me. Um, um, Gene Page Studio arranged the string arrangements for it. Um, Rain is, is was about you know we had the rainbow before it rained, you know normally a rainbow comes after the rain so it's a song about um, you know relationships that um, uh, you you know you be and what it is is two different things and then when then when you realize what you wanted to be is like. <laughs> There was no rainbows. <laughs> but anyhow, um, um, walk on, you know, walk on and, and, and be strong. And I thought of the combination of uh, to make that kind of a statement was uh, horns. So we used uh, guys from Tower Power. Um, but I thought the combination of horns and a bagpipe gives you that that thing about you know 
like dust off and walk tall against the wind or whatever, you know. And um, Mickey Hart, that he knew uh, this cult of bagpipe players. So we, so I got a bagpipe player, and we had him play two times from the beginning to the end of the track to drum and the artist like can you kind of solo like I see a solo and so whatever he did he did and then after we got that then I, I could take a section of that and, and which we did we used we got the winds whoosh, the winds coming as if it's coming from way there and then all of a sudden you hear the bagpipe and then the two bagpipes are joined together and then the bass ding, 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 you know the, the funk comes in and that was you know it's like painting with the tubes of paints and i love doing that i i love doing albums where i can take the textures and and make creative stories the guy who was doing the bagpipe he was very upset because he thought it was going to be a bagpipe album <laughs> and 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 you know it's it's interesting to me how some people are so ritually they're so into the rituals. It's the same thing with Chuck Cocker blues or anything. Everybody who, who lives that kind of line, they have that. It's they they mimic something or they try to do something. Well, I would say it's mimic, you know, whatever that is, and they hold that as 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 pure. That is considered pure. To me, pure is when you do something in a moment. That's pure. Anytime somebody traditionally tries to mimic something, that is the furthest from being pure. In my mind, that is like, you know, that's like, that's plastic coats of, of, um, so, so it was, a, it was, a, it was a surprise when a guy was so upset that in embracing, wow, this is cool to join with these other sounds and my back, my back, like, he was insulted. He was appalled because it's, um, it, 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 it's like, it, it's like I, it was like a religion and I, I stepped on their traditions, I think is. So, go figure. Yeah, you had a. So, uh, we're, we're tune. There was another tune on there. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I noticed, uh, I think, some multiple sound effects on that record because you have the sound effects yes. leading into Haunted House also. Okay, so, huge library of sounds. And that was another inspiration for Mickey Hart from The Grateful Dead. Of sounds and the landscape. And he bought, he had a Nagra, so I got myself a Nagra. And I would go out myself and record um, sounds. And, and like I said, this library made some sounds. So when Greg and I was doing this album and I needed the oboe and like the water in it, so we would just do it on a small scale. I would put a mic, I would put water in the bathtub and a mic real close in and then make the same motions, like if it's waves and anything that on a big scale so we don't have to go down to the pier in san francisco to record everything some of the sounds we got were from the pier like fog horns like so close to us when we go out to the pier but you can't see them fog there's just thick fog right in the middle there so they really push hard and then as soon as it escapes the fog sound it's so huge and then it bounces off the city back. It's amazing. Sounds are amazing. So I love I love the fact that interludes going telling a story and going from one tune to another using effects. That's uh, always been a, a, a fun thing to do. Yeah. yeah. So do you feel like equal love for the first record and this one, or is there one you prefer over the other? We'll talk about the, the third one too, but I'm just curious, you know, from your perspective, uh, if they both have a special place in your heart, or you like one more than the other. All of them have uh, have a they're different. Have a special thing in my heart. They all of them, they all meant a lot to me. And and also besides the three albums, the third one you're going to bring up. There's so much other stuff I've recorded, produced. Um, some things have been released just like in Japan that 
And I'm very proud of that. It's as good as uh, better than anything I've done back then. Um, every, everything I do, once I release it, I, I, I rarely can say that, oh, I'm, I wish I hadn't put it out. I mean, even stuff that I put out where I, I actually was singing, and I'm not a singer. Vocal. I'm a singer with harmonica, but vocal. I put out, um, you know, I, I, I believe it's 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 good for what it is. Lee, you know, obviously you're influenced by a lot of different genres and sounds and, and, and that kind of thing. Can you kind of explain how, you know, that musical kaleidoscope, you know, coalesces and comes together for you? I mean, it seems like all these disparate sounds and instruments and things like that. How do you bring that together for a, you know, a whole in a musical piece? You know, when I put out, um, especially when I did the third album, My Road, Our Road album, and if I may mention that now? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. My Road, which is a very symphonic piece, I actually used 38 strings to, with, uh, yes, I called up just for the one, like, da da and then it goes into our road. Said to me, like, man, you, know, you shouldn't put that on the, before I put the album on, you know, last year we hear them tunes. Why, why would you want to put this at, this tune on the same album with that? And it's it's almost like the same as you, Curious, how I combine. I just find it in that if I'm going to paint the world, they're, they're different neighborhoods. It's all one, one world. Um, you know, I mean, I see everybody has the different flags, so names for the food, so or whatever you want to, however you want to weigh or measure it. But it's all dominated. And to me, I, I don't say, okay, I wrote a song, a tune here, I wrote these other tunes here. Um, uh, maybe I should do style of that style. Stars, I think of as each thing sets a mood or something. And uh, and if they work, where one comes out of the other or whatever, that's good enough for me. In other words, that's that's the journey. I always pursue. Well, that record, so um, My Road, Our Road, came out in 83, was it, or 81? Uh, 80, 81. Yeah, so, yeah, that, that song, Our Road, I mean, that was an epic, uh, really quite a piece of work, and um, you had a choir on it, too, which added a lot. Um, I, I, yeah, I, if I may say, the concept of that album in traveling, I, I, I always, you know, there's a thing called playing for change today. Uh, I'm actually wearing this thing here, playing for change. What this guy Mark Johnson is doing, like, he's making people, people feel that music anywhere in the world has a common denominator. And it does. It doesn't matter if I'm playing Ascanade. I mean, there are certain textures that are very similar, but but attitudes or, you know, just music is universal. It's anywhere in the world. We, we speak and we cry and laugh or whatever about the same things. And so I, I always had the dream of doing what Mark Johnson or what um, Playing for Change is, is doing on such an amazing level um, that back years ago, I would, these concepts I would talk about would fit into that today they call the world beat music or whatever. And so the idea of, of just a little bit of that, make a little bit of sense, was my road, our road album, which, which was just touching the, scratching the surface of what I wanted to do in our road. And what I did was, after I did the 30, 38 strings, my road, which is about me after the, after the war, uh, after the war in Bonn and, and the consequences, um, you know, growing up, and then goes to our road. 
Well, in our road, I took the truck. I, after I recorded a basic track, which was, um, which, um, um, uh, um, I'm, I'm so bad with names. Anyways, uh, uh, I took the, made the basic track with, uh, with bass and drum and a harmonica. And then I would take in a recording truck and I would go different places uh, to record different people to put on it to make the story. So in the studio, I would put um, um, the trumpet player, Gary Grant. I would, I would put him on. Now, he's one of the greatest trumpeters I've ever heard. But he always plays the second parts. He does every, he's done every record in, in LA, the studios. And he, he has, I came to his house one time, and he wants me to hear all these records he's done. And he's having me listen for the second trump part, the, the, being the second trumpet player. <laughs> so, you know, because there's not a guy who gets the gigs, he's the, he always the lead. So Gary Grant came to the studio and let him play th through it. So I have now an amazing trumpet thing. I, um, Ayeto, um, who is one of the greatest percussion drummers, you know, uh, Ayeto and Flo Perrine. So Ayeto, I got him to do all the percussion stuff. Um, but I would take the truck from there, then to I booked myself a gig in Pasquale's when there was Pasquale's in Malibu. Uh, just and um, and an intermission sets. I had the recording truck pulled it up, and I played the track to the people in the club, and had Pat Reese on the sax play live. So it made it feel like you went from that trumpet. Tropic thing. I mean, not to, you know, kind of to going into a, a nightclub now. Back to Oakland, and then we were calling the Edwin Hawkins singers. The lyrics I had now that it feels so good. Tell everybody, tell everybody. So I had to do that. I wanted to go to the tropics. So then it went from minor to the major hmm. thing. Then I had uh, Flora Perim and Ayeto perform and then at the end it all comes together and then at the very end the sun is going down and that's the strings come back in and that was like you call it epic it was like in in south africa i found out it was all of africa but basically south africa has sold uh someone told me seven hundred thousand units wow um so, uh, and I came to South Africa two years ago, the love, the joy of South Africa. We played there, I brought, I brought Leosk and friends from, from Seattle and the people went nuts. I, they told me that there was very popular, but I had no idea. I mean, everybody, they went nuts, thousands of people. Um, so that um, that's that's a big reward to me, you know. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. To uh, to to know that, but but yeah, they all they all they all have. Every time I do something, I put out. I certainly believe in it. Well, that's a great story, Lee. Um, if viewers, listeners haven't heard Our Road from My Road, Our Road, you got to go check that one out. It's, it's quite an experience. But after that, Lee, that was um, 81. <clears throat> from that period on, especially, you know, for the general public, um, you kind of went uh, underground a little bit. And uh, we didn't, you know, see very much in terms of releases from, from Lee Oscar. So uh, why, why was that? Why haven't we seen more solo records after that from the Oscar? Well, I mean, the short answer is that, you know, I was plugged into a big machine. That artist who War was also released through was um, my friend. And then the second and the third album was the deal of Before the Rain and My Road, Our, my Road, Our Road album was, um, you know, released with Electro Asylum, and that was a big deal with Joe President. And, and he loved Before the Rain, and then, then the second album with him, which was My Road, Our Road album. Um, you know, some promotions, but the 
But then political things started to take place and with the management and, and you know, just like with war and, you know, industry changes and things, different things and our relationships. And, but the music has never stopped. I've never stopped. And I had, like I said before, I have, have things like right now I'm working on things ever since then that I've been working, that I've done. And uh, Japan has embraced some of my later works, uh, standards. I did uh, uh, one album that, that has one original tune called Those Sunny Days, but everything else was standards that uh, I was commissioned to do. And that was a challenge because I never played anybody else's stuff before that, but it was an amazing experience. Like in a sentimental mood, George in my mind, when I fall in love. And that was like on top of the charts in the jazz and, and uh, like right up in the top with, in Japan. And then I released another album with them in Japan and that was called, I called Reflections. And um, some are original tunes and some are standard Brazilian, all Brazilian. Amazing stuff, and that was a challenge, but it was amazing to do. And and I have the rights to that outside Japan for the rest of the world, but I haven't released it yet because to release anything, to do it properly, um, you know, you have to designate certain things or connections, whatever. And that's the place I'm in right now between past stuff that I have the rights to that I have done that. You may not, you obviously may, may never heard. Uh, it's still good to make it release. It's, it's, it's timeless. And new stuff that I'm doing, it's, uh, I'm very excited about releasing. So, so life goes on with or without me, and I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> We're all the better off for that, um, that's for sure. So, before we start talking about the uh, instruments, I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, during the 70s heyday and all throughout that period in your solo career, you know, as I think back, sometimes the critics weren't as kind to War and to Lee Oscar as maybe they should have been. I thought they were, you know, kind of harsh in some of the reviews you might see in a Rolling Stone or something like that. Did you guys pay much attention to that? Did it matter to you or was it all about how you felt and how the people received it? I don't. I don't think I ever was. I don't think it ever took me down. I was devastated. So I never, I, you know, but I did pick up at times, just like I talked about Roland Cook and booed off. We never. Nobody ever did that extreme. But I remember one time, the Rolling Stone magazine sent um, this young man out to travel with us for about a week or two. Maybe it's a few days, but I thought it was, could have been a week or more. And he was scared. He was like a scared little mouse. I don't know if he had a phobia about black folks. I don't know what, what it was, but I think he was, I mean, we, we sometimes when we are just when we to us are just talking to others look like we're about to beat the crap out of each other. I mean we we were expressive, <laughs> me and all the guys. I mean we you know we we don't sugarcoat stuff and you know BS. It doesn't mean guys, but it's just just the way we are, you know. And this guy was on a road to to uh, to. Uh, make a story or something, and he was shaking constantly. The story that came out, uh, once he get back, was not flattering <laughs> for us. <laughs> so I don't know. That was uh, one of those incidents. Um, I, I I know that a lot, I, I, I listen to stuff lately, like when Howard and Hale were here, and we were hanging out, back and listen to some things that I, you know, I hadn't listened to it in, I don't know how long, because, you know, you move on, I don't, you only got so much time in the day, and so I really hadn't listened to a lot of stuff we did from way back. I was actually pretty blown away. I mean, it's amazing stuff that, um, 
we wanted, we said, man, let's do this again. Mm -hmm. It was just, wow. People are so caught up in categories. People uh, don't take music in as just music. They have foreseen, like, they already have a premeditated mm -hmm. of what, like a sense of what, what they think is good or not, instead of just being open to something. And we were at a time where there was a lot of music going coming out, but most things were ca very specific categories. They couldn't figure out. Beating up, you know, are you a pop? Are you are you R and B? Are you jazz? We all of it. And when White can be fancy, we came out. It was like that. That was that really Lily White kind of happy. Why can't we be friends, you know? Oh man, we got to assume we can cross over now to pop and then we're going to say that, that, you know, it's a, there's a black band and the, and the black states is saying, that sounds too white, you know? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. all that silly stuff, you know? So everybody was so conscious about how to cross over. And when I do my soul albums to answer back in that, I never have to be conscious about that because I was just doing solo albums. I wasn't trying to make a hit.